Good evening, everybody. We are going to uh, start now. And so uh, we are, uh, this is the first Wednesday night for our fall encounter. And uh, just in case this happens to be the first time that you've been here, let me explain kind of how this fits into our overall uh, strategy in terms of what we do. Um, uh, this actually existed before I got here over 12 years ago. And when we came, uh, one of my huge passions is to teach the Word of God, uh, to teach how to understand the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. And so I love what I do Sunday morning, really do. I, get, I don't know if you can tell, I'm usually having fun up there. I love talking about Jesus. Um, but I probably am more at home here, actually, on Wednesday night, uh, where I have a little more time and I've got a marker and some white space where we can actually go a little bit deeper into it. And so not that we don't value what we can do Sunday morning in terms of the proclamation uh, to the masses, but I really enjoy uh, more of the in-depth uh, conversations that we might have. Um, so we would actually consider this on our Go Gather Grow chart, we would consider this to be one of those grow opportunities. So we would say, hey, listen, we want you to be a part of this. Um, we want you to grow in your understanding about who God is. Now let me say this just so we're really, really clear. We don't have some weird fascination with uh, smart ideas or deep ideas, uh, uh, theological even ideas for the sake of our own head knowledge. The Bible makes it very clear that knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And yet the Apostle Paul isn't in, in, in any stretch of the imagination trying to pit knowledge versus love. Like, which one do you want? Do you want to be loving or do you want to have knowledge? No, the Apostle Paul also spends a tremendous amount of time saying things like, I do not want you to be ignorant. So he believes strongly in knowledge. He believes strongly in having a sound understanding who God is, what is this world that we're living in, why is this world broken, how is God fixing it, all of those things. Who are we by our nature? All of these things are deep within Paul's, um, in Paul's teaching, but it always has direct application. Um, and I know that it's hard to do direct application when there's as many of us in this room. Um, I hope that you know that the leadership here, the staff here, um, would love to continue the conversation should something come up. And I think this, uh, this particular series this entire fall may have a number of those things, but uh, should something come up and you wanna continue the conversation as we say every Sunday, if you would like to continue this conversation, we would love to continue this conversation with you. If you're having a hard time seeing how does this fit in my marriage or in my uh, workspace or um, uh, as I'm raising my kids or my grandkids, uh, as I'm sharing the gospel uh, with, a, with a neighbor, um, I, I genuinely believe that everything that you will learn tonight will have some very immediate application. But it takes a lot of work. It just does. And there are some of us that it comes more naturally to. Um, for whatever reason, I've never been the student ever, and I've lo I love being a student. I would trade spots with you for a moment. Uh, it'd be easy for me to do that. I've never been the student that came back and said, we didn't really teach me anything practical. Because I actually understood that part of the job of a student is to seek practical application for it. That's what I always thought like my responsibility was. And so as a professor was teaching almost anything, I'm always saying, well, where would, would I use that? Oh, I would use it here and I would use it here. I wonder if that would work like this. So hopefully that you're, you're actively engaging, that even when we're talking about this grow piece, we never think of growing our minds outside of the transformation that is happening in our hearts. When we talk about grow, we believe it is the wholeness of us. It is a uh, commitment to become Christ-like. 
And so for the next 50 minutes or so, we are going to punch out this, uh, uh, the, the topic of tonight. Um, you have on this sheet um, the, over, uh, the overview of the entire series. Um, just want you to have a big understanding of what we're doing and how we even got here. We, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of praying actually goes into this. These aren't just, hey, Ryan, hey, Drew, what do you want to teach? Paul, what do you want to, it's, it's a lot more than that. And this actually came out of a lot of detailed study that we're doing right now in our winter series. Um, so we're talking a lot about kingdoms in conflict and we're talking about worlds and cultures clashing and in light of that, I think it is essential that as followers of Jesus Christ that we understand what this concept means, the kingdom of God. So that's really what we're going after. We need to understand this kingdom idea. And so the three words that we're going to kind of rove around is, number one, what are some of the expectations that we should have? And I think, I think many of you, I mean, the one thing I love about Sunnybrook, maybe every church is like this, but the one thing I love about you guys is how much you love history. Because I think it's just, it kind of fits, uh, even from my message, uh, was it last week or a few weeks? I can't remember, they're all blending together. But the whole idea of kind of walking through history and architecture and how the church, I had so many people say, that was fascinating, I had no idea. And it's that, I think it's a mutually shared understanding. And so I think you're going to love some of the stuff that we're going to share with you in terms of some of the king, kingdom expectations in a period of history known as Second Temple Judaism which is the time around Christ, when the Jews, I mean, you've heard preachers talk about it quickly, but we're gonna share with you some more in-depth information about what was the Messianic kingdom that the Jews were anticipating, and how did that even feed into a lot of the language and a lot of the images that Jesus himself actually used. And so for those of you that have always been interested in what were the Jews really expecting, and how did they miss Jesus, and why did Jesus tell parables about a wedding banquet, and why did Jesus, I mean, all of this actually fits into a lot of the rabbinic teachings that were happening during that time period. So it's not just what should we expect when we think about kingdom and world and God, but even what were those messianic expectations that happened in Jesus' time. So we'll deal with some of those expected pieces. Then we'll move into that middle section and we're going to say, listen, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, I would argue, clearly in the parables. Not that there's still not room for interpretation and wonder and worship and marvel, but Jesus didn't speak in a way where we would walk away going, yeah, I had no idea what that meant. No, Jesus actually taught in parables so that those who are in, in, in the, or have the spirit, um, those who are his, would have a deeper understanding and appreciation for what the kingdom is. And so we're gonna actually talk a little bit about that. And then lastly, we're gonna deal with the issue of realized. And uh, we're gonna kind of look more at history in terms of some of the things that have happened. So um, I probably shouldn't have gone through this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of retouch on some of these things as we, uh, as we move through. So let me, let, me, let, me, let me kind of, if you just bear with me, let me kind of go over this in more clearly. I wanna read to you uh, these paragraphs that we prepared. So section one is, the kingdom of God will shape our understanding of the world and God's sovereign control. So one of the reasons why this topic matters so much and why that we need to realize what expectations should you have when you hear the word kingdom and all the words associated with the word kingdom is that it really gives us a paradigm to understand things, okay? So we sing a song. I guess we used to sing a song. Um, this is my father's world, right? Remember that song? Remember that hymn? This is my father's world. Um, when, when we sing that song, that gives us a way of looking at the world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can look at the world around me and think, I can't tell this is God's. I watch the news and I'm going, it's hard to believe that that is God's world. 
And so when you think about God's world and you think about how we fit into that, I mean, when you look at God over the world, how much of you, in terms of your thinking and your praying, um, and this really begins to affect how you respond, whether it's hope or hopeless, how many of you look at the world and see a God who is in sovereign control of his world? A lot of us go, well, I don't see that. You, want, you, want, you might even say to me, haven't you heard of ISIS? Right? Haven't you heard of what's going on? Okay, so do you realize, like, if you have the, the wrong understanding of how all of this is designed by him under his sovereign control, how it can begin to shape things? For those Christians who are um, exceedingly cautious, exceedingly nervous, exceedingly afraid, not just the normal caution that comes with, uh, yeah, it just makes sense to kind of have my, uh, my, uh, my alert up a little bit. You know, I'm in Mexico, first time down here, and I just need to be aware that this isn't still water. Okay, I'm not talking about that kind of just general bringing some common sense to the table. I'm talking like I think the world is uh, spinning out of control and it scares me. I don't even know why you have children nowadays. I guarantee if Andrew and I were doing it again, we wouldn't even have kids. I mean, I've heard people talk like that. Really, why? Because their view of God, their view of the world, isn't biblical, if I can say that. It sounds harsh, but it's just, that's not a biblical perspective. You don't read the Bible and go, man, God's got no control over this thing. You don't read it that way. You say, yes, there are problems. Yes, there are difficulties. Yes, there are hardships. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there is rebellion but there is also a God who is sovereign and in control. So this kingdom of God mentality, okay, in its, in its fullness, will definitely shape how we look at the world and how we look at God's sovereign control. In its simplest definition, the kingdom of God is God's reign, okay? So that word like king and reign and throne and authority and power, which by the way, I don't know how you feel about those words. I come from a generation that is supposed to really have a hard time with those, with those terms. I mean, I'm always told that I'm kind of part of that rebellious generation. I don't know if it's because my dad is just uh, exceedingly older than me, so I don't know if it's just it was a generational difference in terms of how I was raised. But I hear those words and I find like peace and comfort. I find order. I really do. That's kind of my, my, the way that I approach that. When I think about power and authority, when I think about God reigning, I don't think, oh, that's so oppressive. I think, man, that just, I'm so grateful, right? So those words come alongside of it, but we do, we all, I hope you're aware of this, that we live in a culture that hears words like power and they think power trip. They think abuse of power, not just not just power. So this is why when we look at this, we're, we're, we're literally thinking about uh, the kingdom of God being God's reign over his people, okay? And I, and I wanna just say this, I don't know if you wanna write it underneath it. When I say his people, I'm going to say his people, those who are following him, and then those people who are still his, whether they're following him or not. I think that's a biblical perspective. Um, it's not that God has those who are his, and then those who aren't his are free to live however they want. And then God's just mad at them. No, the, the truth is, and I think this maybe even explains how God looks at us, is that when you think about those who are made in his image, that is who? That is all humanity. 
whether they believe or not, whether they recognize or not, whether they feel or respond to the sovereign control, authority, will of God or not, they are his people. And then, by the way, there is complete control over the universe. That nothing seems to happen outside of his permission and will. And that should shape how you look at the world how you understand how all of these things fit together. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to jump into the explain piece, which is this. The fact that Jesus spent significant time teaching about the kingdom of God, and he describes, I don't know, I, I, when I wrote this first, I thought, is that overstating it? Because we usually don't talk like this. But Jesus actually describes a more righteous level of kingdom living in the Sermon on the Mount. And you might go, Really? Like you can be more righteous? Oh yeah, the Bible has no problem with that word. We, we kind of feel weird about that. But in Matthew chapter five, verse 20, as he's summing up what he is teaching to his followers, he actually says this, and unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you surely will not enter into the kingdom of God. Wow. Did you hear what he just said? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, of, the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter into the, you put that in its original context, like Jesus is describing a way of living that is profoundly holy. Jesus doesn't call us, and I, this is one of my concerns, is that again, I don't like the idea of pitting knowledge versus love. No, it's a love that is based in the truth. I went back and listened to a sermon I, I thought I loved. I listened to it again. I thought, oh, it wasn't as good as I thought it was, um, which happens when I'm listening to my own preaching all the time. But this was somebody else that I was really excited about. And I, I heard him. And one of the things that just struck me as odd was this was preached in 2005 at a conference I attended. And he was, he was explaining how, um, how he's learning that it's not just about the truth, but it's about love. And I'm thinking, well, is what you said a true statement? Like, is there a wrong way to love? Like, would there be a bad way to love? I mean, it's interesting how we want to pit these things against one another. And Jesus is actually seeing them together. And so Jesus, um, in his perfectly divine wisdom, is calling us as his followers, which is what the Sermon on the Mount is, is complete obedience to him, which that's what kings do. They, they demand and expect and reward and punish whether it would be obedience or disobedience. And so Jesus is giving us profound insight and it is from his love and his kindness and his mercy and his gentleness and his patience that he bears with us and that he speaks to us. And in this powerful Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to look at, we're going to see a, a righteous, a more righteous way to live. That's why when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. I mean, can't you just feel he's up in the game? Why? Well, I, I think there's lots of reasons why, but I think one of them is, is because he is now with us. There is something that is fundamentally different. You no longer have the law, you now have the Son of God with you, and things are different. And then lastly, kind of under that explain section, we're gonna look at a number of his parables um, that love to talk about the kingdom of God, and he uses that phrase over and over again, particularly in Matthew's gospel, which where we'll spend a majority of our time, he loves to say the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that, by the way, is a Jewish idiom. They, they so held in reverence the word God that instead of saying the word God, you would know this even about the name of God, Yahweh, they would actually replace it with something else. So they would say Adonai instead of Yahweh, even though the word would be his name, but they would say Adonai, Lord. And so the kingdom of, and Matthew, good Jewish boy that he is, 
would actually substitute the word heaven for God out of reverence for him. And so those are, subs those, are, those are the same thing, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. You read Luke's account or Matthew's account, one uses kingdom of God, one uses kingdom of heaven in many of those situations out of just complete reverence for the creator of the universe. So we'll look at some of those parables. And then lastly, the kingdom of God is more than the physical presence of the church. And so here's one of the things that I, I think it's really good for us to realize. Um, I have found it to be healthy to realize how small I or even how small we are in everything. We, especially when we live in a culture that likes to make us center, that likes to make us bigger, that likes to make us um, the focal point. And what we actually realize is it's, it's, it's actually more than that. And I would even say as much as I think the church is a big part of the existence that exists in the world, this is a big question, is God's kingdom reign bigger than just us? Does God reign even in the midst of rebellion against him? Does he still reign? And theologically, the Bible says, yes, he does. He still reigns there. And so the kingdom of God, in terms of uh, how we're going to look at it in, in, the, in this last section, in terms of how it's realized, we're gonna actually look at it that it's more than just the physical presence of the church, but the church is a huge part of this. And then following Pentecost, we're gonna learn how the church has viewed itself as God's kingdom within God's world. How do we then respond? Um, uh, Chuck Colson wrote a book years ago that I thought was one of my favorite books at the time uh, entitled Kingdoms in Conflict. And he is ask, asking and answering a lot of questions. Um, how do we, as the kingdom of God, respond to a world that is in rebellion against him? And what does that ultimately look like? And so that's gonna be the overflow. So let's, uh, let's jump right into it. If you have your Bibles, um, there's going to be a number of sections that I'm gonna want you to look at. This first one is more of a general overview, so you can turn there or not. Um, but the first thing that I want us to actually see is that how God is described in the Bible, and again, hold on to these uh, hold on to these metaphors, hold on to these images, because they are really, really helpful. Um, how many of you get concerned when young people are talking to you and they don't seem to have the respect that is necessary? Does, anybody, does that bother anybody? Yeah, it bothers me. Um, uh, just, just even recently, um, one of my boys uh, kind of jokingly referred to my father by his first name. And I just, uh, I went over to him and he meant, he meant nothing by it. He was just not raised right. So that's where I, I wish I could blame Andrea, but she probably raised him a whole lot better than I did. But I just walked over and I whispered into his ear. I said, hey, never again, right? You will refer to him as grandpa. And he just, yes, sir, <laughs> right? Because why? Because he's grandpa. He's not Frank. It's not what he is. He's, he's grandpa, you understand me? And there really is a, a respect that is necessary. And, and by the way, that is a good way for us to look at things. So when we're thinking about this kingdom of God idea, before we even just throw up the idea of king, I think we first need to look at how does the Bible present God at the beginning? So what, what, what position does he have? And, and by the way, uh, a word that I'm just going to tell you because we just kind of throw it around a lot um, is a polemic. And a polemic is an argument against something else. And so you might, you might be reading, you might be hearing actually on the Discovery Channel that certain Bible stories were polemics. And that basically says um, they were literally like arguments against other things. And here's what I do believe. Um, the Bible is true, okay? I don't think that'll surprise you. I believe the Bible is true. But it's very interesting that the way God presents himself is foundationally different than how everybody else looked at the gods. 
everyone else, as they looked at the gods, and I did this a couple of years ago when we were doing a series in Genesis, I went back and I read a number of the creation uh, narratives from other, from other religions. And all the other religions have this as, as their basic uh, genesis, <laughs> as their basic genesis of the world, are gods at war with one another. Chaos and conflict. Two, one of the most famous stories, these two gods warring with one another in a husband and wife relationship. And the husband slays the wife, takes a knife, slits her entire body, then grabs her flesh and flings it out into the universe. And that is what the universe is, actually. It is just this being of godness that exists everywhere. And so you see this, this conflict, this dualism, this, uh, this chaos and then in the midst of all of these other narratives, all these other ways in which things, now all of a sudden you have the Genesis narrative, which by the way, I think happened first, okay? But in these competing stories, what do you actually have? And in the beginning, there was just God. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God made the world. And, and watch, the, watch the difference, and then the Hebrew language, it just, it jumps out at you. And he takes that which is chaotic, Water that is uncontrollable. And what does he do? He brings dry land. And then he makes life after its kind. And he says to the land, you shall go no further. And the waters, you shall go no further. And he separates light from darkness and day from night. He is this, this ordering God. And it is a fundamental difference. I, I tell you, I remember, I don't know if you ever, some of you might be like this. I don't, I'm kind of nervous that there are other Genesis stories. I'm afraid that maybe mine's crazy too, you know? Anybody else know what I'm talking about? And I loved it. I had a professor years ago said, no, you don't need to be afraid. Read them. It will give you great confidence with the story that we have. See, so when we look at how we understand God, the first picture that we have of him is this all-powerful, from absolutely nothing, for his own purposes kind of creator. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 does a whole lot more than teach us about how he made you and I. It puts him in that primal place where it is hard to have anything but reverence and awe. It is designed to make us humble and to worship. And the problem, I think, with a lot, of our, uh, a lot of our approaches to God is because we don't pay attention to the Genesis narrative. We don't recognize with Yahweh as creator. And then the other reason why I think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are so critical, by the way, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I don't think there's two creation narratives. You'll, you'll read that as you read Genesis 1 and 2. Some people think there's two. I think there's one, and it's told from two different perspectives. But then Genesis 3 is critical as well. Because when you're talking about this kingdom of God and a lot of the language that we're going to use is like, and this kingdom is at war. Well, Jim, I thought you said that everything was peaceful and everything was, well, but let's be honest. When I say, do you see a God who's in control? I hope you say yes. I hope you say yes, that the Bible describes him this way. It gives me an alternative way of looking at it. Like the news isn't what shapes my deepest understanding of the reality around me. God's word stands greater than my own experiences, by the way. That's what I believe. Okay, I'm not saying it's not hard sometimes, but God's word stands more true than my experiences. So if that's the case, then let's be honest, there is struggle, there is conflict, and here's what the Bible says. The Bible describes God's, uh, the humanity that God makes is made in his image to represent him. 
Like, you know that's your job, is to represent God, husbands, wives, to represent him in this world. There is a representative aspect of who we are. Therefore, how we live, how we speak, how we respond, how we everything is a reflection on them. Anybody been frustrated when your kids are bad representatives of the family? Anybody just want to kind of crawl under the desk or take the children and make them live under the desk? Right? Okay. Now, in small picture, that's God for us. I made you in my image. You are my representative. I made you, by the way, responsible. I give you duties. I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to do what I did. I create. Um, I, I take things and I, I craft them together and you are my image bearers and I want you to represent and be responsible in this world that I have made. And then Genesis 3, we actually see the fall. And the fall then represents, although I, when I say represents, it's not like a, a fictitious, I believe it's real. So the fall uh, represents humanity's break with its creator, but it does not free that humanity from the consequences of sin and life under God's sovereign control. So even though, and you'll see why this matters under kingdom idea, if the kingdom of God is his reign in the world, then how do you explain those who are not under his control? How do you explain how all of that is working and that Genesis narrative of God as creator, as God as sovereign, as God as the one who is going to kind of put the boundaries and expel them from the garden and there are going to be consequences for the way this is going to go, um, that God is not confused by this, he's not put out by this, he's not undone by this, he stands sovereign in the Genesis material. And so this is how we fundamentally need to remember who God is. Um, I guess I'm still kind of living from the glow of the revelation material that we finished just last semester. And I'll tell you, without this picture of God, revelation doesn't make a lot of sense, actually. This is how revelation speaks about God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you are worthy of our worship, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. And see, that's different than um, Caesar is Lord. Yeah, the guy that we're going to bury in a couple of years, that guy? So you, you have competing polemics of this God of the universe, and then you have all of the shallow, functional saviors and gods that we toy around with. I think it would be good for us to go back and say, maybe I need to have a, a, a healthier understanding. Maybe, maybe you're guilty of not just kind of flippantly referring to God offhandedly, but I think it would generate a, a deeper level of reverence and a deeper, le deeper level of worship if we were just to reflect on, I, I, here's how I worded it a number of years ago in a sermon, and I've never forgot it, um, the difference between God and you, the amazing difference between who God is and who you are. Have you ever thought about that? How profound that is. That shapes everything. And then all of a sudden questions like, well, who is God to tell me how to live? See how that question's answered? Who is God to tell, who, who, who is God to judge me? Do you realize how when I even say that, that doesn't even make sense? When I say that, or I hear somebody say that, it's like they're talking like a language I cannot understand. Why? I'm, this is where I'll be honest. I'm really grateful for my parents who gave me this picture of God. Profoundly grateful for a mom and dad. You have no idea, moms and dads, how influential you can be when you lift up 
and hold up the name of God in reverence. I cannot tell you how valuable that can actually be. So let's jump into um, kind of where I want to uh, drive the rest of the ship for the last half hour of this, um, which is Israel's understanding of this. By the way, when we look at the kingdom of God, it, it would actually be maybe even easy for you uh, to kind of come along and say, okay, so we've got the Genesis material. God creates everything in the beginning. Um, so when you say kingdom, do you mean like the kingdom of Israel? And is that like the kingdom of God? Well, you do have God's reign, but you do have Israel reigning like a kingdom. And yet it seems like Israel's looking for something more. And we'll talk about this in the next few weeks, that Israel's looking for a different kind of king. Israel's looking for a different kind of kingdom. There are messianic, and I'll define that here in a moment, messianic expectations. There are kingdom expectations that seem to exceed beyond um, just physical Israel. And then all of a sudden Jesus Christ comes and dies very shortly. And in that moment, all of a sudden you have the kingdom of God is near. So you have anticipation of kingdom. And then you have Jesus saying a couple of things. We'll talk about that in a moment, but a couple of things about the kingdom. And so, well, where is the kingdom? And what I want to focus on is this, just this section right in here. And I want us to realize that there's a lot that we can learn about ourselves and about God and about how kings work, about kings and kingdoms and subjects and ruling and rebellion and then a word that this I thought was really I did some fun stuff with this recently and prophecy kind of see how that actually fits in I, I was excited about this. So first of all, let's talk about this kingship, of, kingship idea uh, when we're describing Israel. So if we're looking at the timeline, okay, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, in Exodus, God pulls his people out. He promises Abraham in Genesis 12. He pulls them out of Egypt in Exodus. And you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy not happening over a long period of time. And then God sends them into into this promised land that he promised Abraham a long time earlier, okay? So Abraham actually lived, I, I love dates, Abraham lived about 2000 BC. Moses comes along roughly, although it gets very specific, they actually date the Exodus at 1444 BC, okay? For, not 1445, not, no, actually there are some variants, but 1444 is what I remember. So that is, that is the date of the Exodus, okay? Um, just shortly after that, uh, 40 years later, um, Moses dies, and they go into the promised land. And then you've got King David, and I like to, he's around 1,000, King David is. So between the time of Moses, around 1,400, to about the time of David, say, a little after 1,000, it's interesting that when you look at this time period, Israel is in the land, but they don't have a king. I want you to think about this for a moment. Israel was living in the promised land for three years before they were ever permitted a king. 300 years. That's longer than America's been a nation. 300 years. No king. Why? This, this matters. Because God himself is their king. That's kind of how they should think about it. God comes along and God has always been one. This is, this is, I think, one of the problems that we can have with political allegiances. 
is that without any kind of uh, um, intentional, uh, the best of us in this room, um, even some of the most godly in this room, it is easy, if we're going to be honest, it is easy for me to put my trust in people that I can touch, see, and feel, people that I can just see the immediate benefits that they can give, it's easier for me to find greater strength and comfort and security than them, than in, than in, than in this God that's in the, in the sky, right? 9-11, how many of you just started, uh-oh, I just feel sick. Oh my goodness, I'm worried now, I'm worried, why? Well, because, did, you see not, did you not see what happened? Well, what, what caused that to shake? And in the end, we're watching the world crumble around us, and that influences us more. And that's why I actually kind of like it when I see armed guards in places. I feel more, it doesn't freak me out, I'm, I'm glad you're around. So why, where is that? And, and that is a kind of a natural tendency. And by the way, God knows this. God warns against this. Um, it's interesting that uh, talking about reverence, you do realize why God did not allow the great Moses into the promised land. Think of that, okay? Moses, the great prophet Moses is not allowed into the promised land. And you wanna know why? Because he did not show reverence for the holy Yahweh God in front of the people and he struck the rock. I don't know, if, I don't know about you, I read that story and I'm going, seriously, after all he had to put up with? after all he had to do, after absolutely everything, but God said to him, Moses begged and pleaded with him, and God said, hey, listen, you don't understand. This is a done decision. You are not going into the promised land because my name will be revered. So that's a profound sense of trust, and, and this idea that they went 300 years without a king means that they had to learn immediate and constant dependence upon God. Now, um, kind of, I don't know if you're taking notes, but around that, I'd, I'd put this around there. One of the things that they could take their strength in or take their confidence in was their covenant relationship with God that was signed at Mount Sinai, okay? So for 300 years, they had this covenant that was ratified at Mount Sinai, and they were actually told, Follow God, love God, and God will provide for you, and God will protect you, and God will do all these things. And, and it was amazing how when they entered into the promised land, they actually experienced this. They saw God send the armies in front of them. They saw the walls of Jericho fall down. They watched all these amazing things. And yet, our eyes and our hearts can be crazy deceitful. And people felt like somehow they were missing something. So during the period of the judges, I want you to open up your Bibles and just take a look at this verse. This is one of those verses that probably should be underlined in your Bible because it's one of those ones that just keeps coming up over and over and over again. In the book of Judges, um, which is before there's any kind of Samuel as a king or King David as a king or uh, uh, kings, or Samuel was not a king. Saul was a king or David or, or Solomon. You actually have a period of time in which the nation of Israel was still not being as faithful as they should have been. There was periods of, of, uh, of profound rebellion against God, but every time they did that, that God came and spoke, uh, spoke truth to them, as well as provide uh, someone to come along and to, to liberate them. But the closing verse of Judges actually says this, in, there's days, in, the, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that becomes, that's actually a repeated phrase, I think it's three times in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. 
And that kind of becomes this, um, uh, this, uh, this, this motif, this, this theme that we actually see in the book of Judges. Um, that there is a leadership-less people. Now, before we just start blaming, this is what sometimes I think we can get into trouble with, well, then whose fault was it? And, and I, I, I've spent some time even thinking through this. You know, God told families, here's what I need you to do. Deuteronomy 5. Like what I want you to do is I want you to teach your kids. Deuteronomy 6. I want to teach your kids along the road. I want you to, to do these things. God gave tons of layers of, 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 uh, of society, social responsibility to parents and to, to neighbors. And in the end, this rebellion against that caused some serious conflict. And when there, are, where there is serious conflict, the people begin to worry. And when they begin to worry, they begin to feel like, okay, we need some kind of tangible thing that we can actually hold on to. And as we are going to see here, Israel, this quickly, I can't trust leadership. I don't like trusting God to come, because this is the theme of Judges, is that when Israel would rebel against, and there would be a, a, a people group like the Midianites, you guys know these stories, right? Like Gideon, Samson, Deborah, all these great ones. Here's what would happen. I want you to think about this. God would come down and he would empower through his spirit a leader who would stand up and deliver his people. See, I've always read the book of Judges and kind of thought, oh yeah, that was one of the real dark parts of Israel's history. Well, again, I don't know what the bright spots were. But think about it, all the dark spots. But here, here's one of the beautiful parts of the book of Judges that I, I don't know how much I realized that that I know there was a lot of sin, and I know there was a lot of rebellion, and I know there was a lot of, of, of due shame on the peace, people of Israel, but you know what they at least at some level should have learned? That God will not abandon us. That God will always send his spirit to empower someone, and he will deliver us. That the Midianites are not stronger than the God who will empower, and he'll empower anybody he wants. Samson got some, did you see that? That weirdo. And, and seriously, Samson is a very conflicted, broken, messed up judge. Gideon, same thing. There is some, just some very interesting insight when you read the judges. And what did they learn? They at least learned this. We are dependent upon God coming and being our deliverer. Now, this is where it begins to break apart is because in 1 Samuel 8, but first I want to kind of uh, describe it from Deuteronomy's perspective. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. I don't know if you know about these verses. Um, maybe some of you have read this. I think this is interesting. Uh, Deuteronomy happens before they even enter in. So this is written 300 years at least before this goes on. And I want to read to you verses 14 through 20. Um, Moses is, uh, this is the second address that Moses gives the people of Israel as he's describing it as they're walking into the promised land. And here's what Moses says, prophesying about something that is about to happen 300 years later. Verse 14. When you come, in, when you come to the land that Yahweh, your God, is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So notice what is still, I don't know, I missed this actually. One of the most fundamental pieces about this issue here is that who picks kings? God. God's the one who's selecting the king. I, I totally missed that. 
Let God be the one who anoints a king over you. And then he goes on to say, one from your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses, speaking of the king, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord, Yahweh, has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. I mean, are you listening to what he's saying? Here's the, here's the problem with kings. What kings do is they acquire wealth, they acquire, and even in terms of going to Egypt, that it could even symbolize like this idea of creating um, uh, like a treaty. Egypt's got my back, so I don't have to worry about Babylon, and, uh, which is, becomes a major form of idolatry that happens in the, in the, uh, the coming pages of the, of the Old Testament. He goes on, he says in verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up against his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel and so in Deuteronomy 300 years before they asked for a king God is saying this is the kind of king and I would say the key section of all of that is not the kind of the ramble that we get caught up in in terms of the problem Problems that the king will actually bring, but the one that I will choose. You need to trust me to choose who will lead you. And so now all of a sudden, we actually find out that what Israel decides to do is to trade this concept of kingdom where God is king and God is ruling and God is in control and God is providing his Holy Spirit when necessary and now all of a sudden in 1 Samuel 8, I'm not going to read it to you, but you should know 1 Samuel 8 is a pretty uh, important chapter in Israel's history where the Israelites go to, key, or go to Samuel and they say to Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations around us. Now before we just say these were bad people, and they were, they had a reason to be very leery of what was going on around them. Number one, there was a gentleman by the name of Eli who was a priest. And Eli had two wicked sons. And they were, uh, the concept of priest would actually also serve as like one who would rule over or judge the people. And he, uh, these two wicked sons, the people uh, could not handle because they were corrupting justice. And by the way, God killed them. God will not be mocked. God killed Eli's sons. What's interesting is, there was a young man named Samuel who was actually sent to work under Eli who had two wicked sons. Hmm. Amazing how even when you see, well, you know what I'm never gonna do? You know, I'll tell you the one thing I saw that I'm never gonna do. It's amazing how we just seem to do it. In 1 Samuel 8, when they come to him, they say, listen, Samuel, um, you're great, our problem isn't with you, but your sons are terrible, and we don't trust them. And kind of behind this, I would argue, is, and we don't trust God, and therefore we want a king. 
And, and what they are asking for, and I think this is very interesting, what they are asking for is not a king that God is going to choose, but they're actually asking for a king like the other nations. What they are wanting is a dynasty. What they are wanting is this, this, uh, uh, this, this progression of kings to be like everybody else. And God makes this statement to, to, to Samuel because Samuel is heartbroken over this. Samuel is like, I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe they're doing this. And God says, listen, they're doing this, but it is not their rejection of you. It is their rejection of me. And then God steps in, just like in Deuteronomy, like he predicts. God steps in and chooses his king, which is who? King who? King Saul. He chooses him. And then God does something very profound, is he takes this king and he does something to him. This is what, and, and by the way, I thought they did this more than they really did. I just, I kind of assumed that they did this, that we could almost go to any part of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles and that we would see this for every king, but it's actually rather um, sporadic. It's not as consistent as I would have thought. But they would anoint a king. They would anoint a king, okay? Now, does anybody know what the word anoint actually has um, uh, kind of a, a, the same root word as? It's in, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, to anoint is, um, uh, is it mak, makash or mak, maksha, which is a derivative of the word messiah, okay? So I want you to see how this actually fits together. The word Christ is the, the, the Greek or the Latin of the word Messiah, which comes from this word here. And in English, the Messiah is the anointed one. So I want you to just kind of, just kind of catch the symbolism in this. Um, I would argue like the intentional God's design of this, that God in both his providence but in as well his patience and his mercy, when Israel says we want a king, and God makes it very, very clear, when you say you want a king, the problem is you don't trust me. The problem is that you're rejecting me. The problem is you don't think I'm going to come and deliver you. You don't think I'm going to be the one that can provide real prosperity, real protection, and you're looking in an earthly perspective, and I'm telling you, and this is God's prediction, not just in Deuteronomy 17, but also in, in 1 Samuel 8, is let me tell you what the king's going to do. The king's going to take your children, and he's going to make huge armies, and he's going to run them around for himself. He's going to kill them. He's going to take your own daughters and make them his wives. This is what he's going to do. He's going to take your money. He's going to take everything from you. Why would you choose this over me? And what's amazing is when you read these accounts, you know what the people said? Yeah, we don't care. We want it anyway. Really? You would choose all of that over me? And I owe this idea actually to a, a, a former student of mine who has actually, sadly enough, gone terribly wayward. But I asked him to preach a sermon from 1 Samuel chapter 8, probably the last doctrinally correct sermon he ever preached. Um, and I loved what he did with it. I've never forgotten this. I've been indebted to God for what John said. But he pointed it out that in the end, when you look at this text in 1 Samuel 8, where the people say, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, and you can have a king. And by the time God's done with that entire story, he really does give them a king. And who is that king? Jesus. 
Like God, even in his, I know you don't know what you're asking, and I know this is messed up, and I know this is broken, and I'm gonna give you what you want, and you're going to learn some difficult things through this entire process. But even in that moment, God does not completely abandon his people to their own selfish choices. He's like that, um, that, that wise father who, um, this, is a, this, is, this is a good dad, this is a good mom, who says, listen, I want you to experience the foolishness of your choices so that in the end you can see two things. Number one, how foolish you were in that. And I want you to see like my wisdom in allowing you to go through that and then rescuing you from that, right? Is that not a good mom or dad? Like, I want you to experience all of this, and I want you to know that I was always watching you. I was always there. You were never in jeopardy. You were never in danger. Why? Because I am Yahweh, creator God. And so I love this amazing picture. And, and by the way, here's what you actually have. God anoints Dave, or Saul, doesn't he? He tells Samuel, go anoint Saul, and he does. And then Saul rebels, and guess what? I don't have time to do this, but I thought this was fascinating. Every time Saul rebelled, it was when God said to him, hey, king, here's what I need you to do. I need you to wait. You wanna go to war? I need you to wait for the priest. He's gonna come, and what did he do? I'm not waiting for a priest. He, he t- trusted his eyes, didn't he? We got, I'm, I'm gonna do this now. He took a privilege that was not his. Why? Because that's what happens when you have a crown on your head. You're not gonna listen to anybody. And every time he did that, God took something away from him until finally at the end, God takes his spirit from him for Samuel 16, and guess what he does? He anoints King David. And then guess what? There's not another king he anoints until Jesus. The rest of them are actually a promise to David, right? Your son, and then son, and then son, and then son, and then son. But he doesn't anoint anybody until Jesus Christ comes. And it is God's fulfilling promise to who he is. Now, here's what I find fascinating, is that it's during this particular moment in Israel's history, in 1 Samuel 8 and 1 Samuel 9, a new person enters into into society. And it is the role of the prophet. I think this is interesting. Pro, I, I've said this in the past, and this is really some learning, some, some studying that I've just done actually in the last, in the last few days. Um, it's interesting that, um, here's how I would have said it a week ago if I hadn't read this one particular uh, very fascinating article, is that the prophet came to remind God's people of their covenantal promises to him, which is true. It's not like I was wrong when I said that, but it actually runs deeper than that. See, here is, here is how great our God is, is that it doesn't matter who you are, he is still God. And so you want to be a king, you can be a king. I just want you to know that I am still God, and I don't care how many crowns you have on your head, I don't know how many armies you actually have, none of that matters to me. You will listen to me, and God creates this new person who comes in, and you know what prophets do? They rebuke kings. And Dr. Dumbrell, in just this fascinating uh, paragraph, just describes that there has to be somebody in the kingly court who is actually from the divine court of God. 
And see, that was the role that, that just gave whole new meanings to how the prophets would walk in in front of King Ahab or even in front of King David. I mean, I've actually probably preached this. I mean, can you imagine being Nathan, being afraid to, to walk up to King David and say, you are the man? Um, no, actually, that'd be easy to walk out of, King, out of God's court and walk into David's little tiny little place and go, hey, by the way, that's you. You're the one who... Who are you? I'm Nathan the prophet, and I come from the presence of the Almighty God. I am Isaiah the prophet, and I come from the presence of the Almighty God. And King Hezekiah, here is what the Lord God Almighty says to you. Now do you get like the power, I get goosebumps thinking about that. Now I get the power of the prophet, why? Because there may be kings in this world, but the voice of God reigns supreme. And God will not be mocked, and God will not be silent. He will actually speak. I kind of wish I had this, you know, last Sunday when I was talking about sometimes prophets need prophets. Yeah, prophets need prophets. Kings need prophets. Why? Because God does not abandon his plan. God does not abandon his people. And then lastly, well, I've already talked about Yahweh's Messiah and how he comes, which I think is just a beautiful picture, but that we actually see in 2 Samuel 7, um, I don't have time to read it tonight, but it's a, it's a great chapter. Let me, let me tell you the part that I love about it. I, I always forget this, and then I read it, and I'm like, wow, that is just profound. King David says, God, I want to build you a place. I was looking at my house, and then I was thinking about where you're living, and I'm just thinking, and he's thinking more like about the tabernacle, right? Like somehow, like, <laughs> just think about this for a moment. I've seen some pretty amazing buildings, and this is what God likes to say. Like, what are you going to build me? Like, let's go back to Genesis 1 in terms of who I am. What are you going to build me? What, what could you, think of this, what could you give to God that he doesn't already have or couldn't take or make? Think about that. So King David says to him, but God, I just, I looked at my place and I was kind of thinking where you are, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which by the way, comes back during David's time. And when David acts presumptuously, people die. And he just kind of goes, whoa, I better wait. Right, So God is not mocked throughout this entire period as he is establishing these kings. And when God comes to, to David and David says, I wanna build you this place, God says, there's no place that you can build. And then God says, hey, tell you what, how about I build you a place? How about I give you rest? How about I build a house for you? And that's where it is in this context where God says, and I'm going to keep you on the throne. And then one day from your descendants, I will, and he gives this messianic promise. It comes from this conversation, this prayer that he is having with God where David, I love this idea that we stand before God and we say, God, do you realize this great thing I wanna do for you? And God says, in his divine kindness, patience, and mercy, you have no idea what I have in store for you. You have no idea what I have in store for you. And it is in that context that he promises ultimately that Jesus Christ will come. So here's what I learned from this. It's just, it's amazing how much we get deceived by our eyes and by our hearts and how we become concerned and worried about all the tempests that rage all around us. And I just have, I, this is what's part, have you ever read the Bible and just thought, boy, those people are so dumb? Like, I mean, if I, I would have been David, I would have went up and just punched Goliath right in the face because I just trust God. That's what you probably, right? And it's easy for you to say. Goliath's been dead for a really, really, really long time, right? Um, 
It's so easy for us to just think, I don't understand why um, when Elisha and his, you know, his, his buddy are there and the army's surrounding them and why they're all afraid because why don't they just trust God? And I don't know, when you were watching the news this morning, why were you all freaked out? When the Dow dipped a 1,000, why were you looking at your retirement and going, oh no, oh no. By the way, gained 600 points today, right? Never underestimate the power of greed. <laughs> it always bounces back, I promise you. It's crazy. But we worry, don't we? Oh no, we're just like them. And here, and God is just like God. There's no change. He comes to us, and, and, and you know, I can't help but say, you know, we've got the rest of the story. And the many times that Israel said, oh, I just wish I had a king, oh, I just wish I had a king. And God says to us repeatedly, oh, I just wish you could trust me. I just wish you could trust me. When did I ever let you down? I gave Deborah the power and she did what she was supposed to do. I even used men like Gideon, cowards like Gideon, and absolutely rebellious, debased people like Samson. Like, I will not abandon you. I can use anything for my purposes and for your great benefit. So five quick things that I'm just gonna kind of read through as we unpack the rest of this kingdom material. There are some implications that we get, not just from this, but kind of just hold on to these as we walk through the rest of this series. And they are these. Number one, please remember that the kingdom is God's. It is God's kingdom. And I think sometimes, again, our greedy little hands quickly take things that are not ours. They were never intended to be ours. And we like to take them and make them ours. And God's kingdom is his. Number two, the kingdom, by the way, is both present and future. Jesus loves to talk about this. The kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom of God is among you. And the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And the kingdom of God is here. And it's also coming. I'll, I'll give you a line that I'm planning on using this Sunday. One of the reasons why winter um, shouldn't concern us, and one of the reasons why having these conversations is really, really helpful is because um, Christian people, God's people always fail when they look for an era. You know what, if we could just be like things were back in the 50s, if we could just be like things were back in the whatever, and do you realize that all of that is foolishness? I'll give you another one. I think it is absolutely foolish to even say, oh, I wish we could even go back to the first century. What, what Corinth? Which one? Ananias and Sapphira? Do you realize that God doesn't even tell us to do that? God says that is foolish. God always rebukes his people when they think they can find peace and hope in an era. God doesn't call us to think of an era. God calls us to himself. And that is why the ultimate expression of his kingdom is his ultimate presence. It is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want a place to look. Don't look back. Look forward and look up. That is the profound biblical truth. It's not in an era. It is in him. He is the only one that provides these things. And God wants us to realize that the kingdom is beginning and it ultimately is in front of us. Number three, kingdom requires repentance and faith. Right, because it goes back to trusting God, which means what? Humble yourself, you're not God. Repent, change your mind, humble yourself. Humble yourself, humble yourself. I can't help but think that the king that was said to be after God's own heart was what? The repentant one. 
repentance and faith. Number four, the kingdom demands total commitment. Like there's no room uh, for half of this or half of that. It, it literally just completely envelops who we are. It takes over all of us. It takes every inch of me. And so God, God doesn't share his kingdom. It is complete. And I think we need to get that through our heads. God is sovereign and it is, his rule is complete. And then the kingdom implies actually complete restoration. I think it is good for us to remember that like God's intent is complete restoration. That there's going to be no peace that's going to be left untouched from his divine peace and plan in the future. And that's why I like to think about the kingdom of God. That's why I like to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. That's why I love to, 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 to literally to dedicate my life, my family, all of our purposes for kingdom purposes. Why? Because of what I just said to you. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you Sunday.